Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. Today, I'm so very happy to welcome writer, director, producer, Rama Mosley on. Hi. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. For braving the cold Los Angeles day. Oh, my God, yes. It's and, and the long journey from the other country, which is the west side. <laughs> For those who are unfamiliar with Rama's work, please let me give you an introduction. Rama made her first film at the age of 16 years old. While all of you guys were still doing you know, cheerleading and basketball practice, she was making movies. That's right. That one uh, won the prestigious United Nations Global 500 Award. And over the past 20 years, Mosley has directed feature films and hundreds of commercials, many of which have received quite a few awards. Her feature directorial debut was based on the original comic book she co-wrote titled The Brass Teapot, and that starred Juno Temple and premiered at TIFF. It was also distributed by Magnolia Pictures and in 2013 was nominated for the International Critics Award and the Saturn Award. So in fall of 2014, Mosley directed the Afghan segment of Girl Rising, a film that follows nine girls from around the world as they break down barriers and stand up to injustices. The film was nominated for Outstanding Documentary at the Image Awards. And since then, she has been a vocal advocate for girls and women's rights around the world, launching the U.S. social media campaign behind Bring Back Our Girls, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners definitely have heard. In 2017, she directed the dramatic thriller Tattered Demalion, starring Levin Rambin, Taylor John Smith and Jim Perrick in a story about a young veteran who returns home to the Ozarks to find her brother, but instead finds a little boy in the woods who may or may not be making her quite ill. Um, and that one's going around festivals right now. Yeah. And Rama, you decided to pick a movie that I hadn't even thought of as a possibility, and that is The Witches of Eastwick. Yeah. Could you tell me, you know, a quick explanation of why you chose to pick that movie? I when I was a child I saw that film and it was incredibly impactful. I loved it. It was like um one of the most exciting moments in my life. I think second to maybe ET was seeing that film because it explored not only female identity mm-hmm. and you know this incredible power, but it also was really you know, it's a supernatural, supernatural, you know, action adventure film mm-hmm. with these incredible three female leads. So it like ignited me in every possible way. It was one of those films that made me want to be a filmmaker. And um, it also was like wish fulfillment. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm imagining uh, a little Rama watching this. And I mean, there's definitely a lot of suggestive things in this movie. <laughs> Oh, yeah. My parents, I was born on an ashram, so my parents were really quite liberal. And the fact that I even saw that film is, you know, amazing at that age. But yeah, no, I was like all over it. I obsessed (laughs) over it. I went and wanted to see it again. And I've watched it many times since. Well, there's... There's a few good reasons why that we're about to get into. Um, For those who haven't seen The Witches of Eastwick, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep The Witches of Eastwick first, this is your chance. Now, let's introduce The Witches of Eastwick. 
written by Michael Christopher and directed by George Miller in 1987. The Witches of Eastwick stars Susan Sarandon, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Cher as three women in a small New England town who are fed up with the men in their lives. One night, the three wish a kind, handsome man into their into their town. It's kind of a manifestation. And the next day, an eccentric devil-may-care gentleman named Daryl, played by Jack Nicholson, moves into the local historic mansion. Daryl, despite the fact that he's brash and actually kind of gross, begins seducing the three women one by one. And when they realize they might be in competition with one another, he essentially tells them, hey, it's all cool. You can be in this harem with me. Um, <laughs> after showing them that they all have these kind of magical powers on the tennis court, which is that's an interesting scene. So the quartet then lived together in sin and debauchery for a while in the mansion while the townspeople talk about them behind their backs. One devout Christian woman played by Veronica Cartwright goes nuts because she's the only person who can see that Daryl is probably a devil. And eventually she dies after Daryl magically makes her vomit a million cherry pits. Okay. Anyway, Daryl <laughs> impregnates all three women, but they're not so keen on him having so much control over them. And also, there's that killing the woman thing. Um, so they come together to use magic to drive Daryl out of their lives forever. And thus ensues one of the longest action and effects sequences in cinematic history outside of literally any other George Miller movie. Yeah. <sighs> it is intense. It's so intense. And I mean, okay. I wasn't sure if I was going to start at the end, but, like, let's start at the end of this movie. Let's talk about the end of this movie. Because Michael Christopher, the writer, um, he said that everything was supposed to be ending in the church. So you've got that amazing yeah. church scene with Jack Nicholson. When he comes stumbling in. <gasps> well, because they've done this hex. Okay. So the, what's so incredible is this moment where they're all going along, and you're, you're going along, too, right? You're mm -hmm. imagining how you would be if given this power and, and with this magnetic guy. Yeah. And then suddenly he kills this woman, you know, through the cherry thing. And you realize, well, hold on, this is not okay. He's actually really not okay. And then and then the women band together and they form a hex they, they, to banish him. And he actually gets rolled out of town and he gets like stuck with wax and feathers. And then that amazing scene that comes where, come, oh. where he comes bursting through the church in the middle of the sermon and gives this incredible monologue about women. Like, why did God create women? So what do you think? Women, a mistake? Or did he do it to us on purpose? Because I really want to know. Because if it's a mistake, maybe we could do something about it. Find a cure. Invent a vaccine. Build up our immune systems. <laughs> Get a little exercise. <laughs> you know... 20 push-ups a day, and you never have to be afflicted with women ever again. <laughs> and it just begins, thus begins, well, it continues this incredible sequence in which he tries to save his life. And the girls really, the women overpower him with their incredible skills and power. It's, um, it's interesting to me that... With this film, I, I wonder what it would have been like if it had just ended at the church as mm -hmm. as it was supposed to. Because you have a separate scene after mm -hmm. where you like um, he gets in the car mm -hmm. and he's driving down that twisty road, mm -hmm. which is 
amazing because mm-hmm. um, he's thrown out of the back of the window and then he has to crawl in. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure how many of Jack Nicholson uh, stunts he did himself, but yeah. it certainly looked like he did yeah. a lot himself. Um, and a lot of that was uh, added in because the need for special effects at that point was so huge that they felt like it wasn't enough. Yeah. So they had to add all these other big set pieces in. The, the part where they go to the uh, at the home and Susan Sarandon falls, it almost falls uh, off of the balcony. And so that need forced them to, to write these other things, which Michael Christopher hated. Yes. He still hates it. Oh, how funny. Well, you know, it, what's so interesting about that film, too, is and I think they did that because it was probably leaning towards less genre. It was kind of like a tweener, you know, because it yes. was like dark and not totally like one thing, supernatural. And those scenes brought, gave it a broader audience. And that is something that I find really relevant because this is constantly something I hear in my own career. Yeah. Tell the me movies. about that. Well, you know, I made The Brass Teapot, which was really um, in so many ways an incredible tweener, too, because it was like a dark supernatural comedy. And, and we should explain the, the premise of The Brass yeah. Teapot is uh, this couple finds this uh, this teapot and it uh, gives them what they want as long as they hurt themselves. Hurt somebody. So basically it's a magical teapot that makes money when you hurt yourself near it. So we created a whole mythology about it that it had been in existence since um, Pontius Pilate took Jesus and Judas betrayed Jesus <laughs> and the silver shekels he was paid were thrown into a field and those were taken by a blacksmith and made into an object, which many people say is the Holy Grail, but we decided that it was the brass teapot. Mm-hmm. And it was mixed with brass and made into this teapot that then was passed on through many like major villains like Genghis Khan and Hitler. So we created this whole <laughs> this whole mythology and created a comic book and worked with the most amazing comic book artists. And I was like so inspired by Witches of Eastwick, War of the Roses, and I wasn't even thinking at that time when I was making that movie, you know, how many years ago, three or four years ago, that Hollywood likes a clearer genre film, Mm -hmm. you know, but because it had so much darkness to it, because it really explored how far are you willing to go for greed? Like, what will you do for greed? Now that if I had done that just in a dark way, right, like a horror film, okay, that was that'd be a clear genre film. But instead, I wanted to do make the film based on all my inspirations, which was that mm-hmm. it's not ever just dark. There's also lightness to it, and so it was funny. You know, it was like it was a comedy. There's moments where it's dark, but it kind of just takes you on this ride where you also are laughing and it's moving, and there's these set pieces and it's action. Yeah, Hollywood has a hard time with very dark comic things yeah. and where to put them. Yeah. And it wasn't even actually like as dark as some movies could be. But so I just I tend to have like a a taste for that. And and it really started with Witches of Eastwick and then War of the Roses. So I made that film and learned the hard way that a genre split film is Mm -hmm. really difficult to market and sell. And especially when you've made it as an independent film, Mm -hmm. you know, with your own money or with investors money you are setting yourself up for a lot of challenges. <laughs> but, you know, which of uh, which is of Eastwick obviously had, you know, a huge budget, major stars and um and you know, you talk about that scene, you know, that's such a classic George Miller scene, you know, when you look at Mad Max, that scene where 
um, Jack Nicholson is pulled out of the car and then comes back and you know, is trying to get the hold yes. of the car. Like so many of those moments throughout the movie are really classic George action films that you can study and really learn from. He created such an incredible world too because that town, I think it's one of the first times that I remember seeing this perfect idyllic town that is like very Americana and then you know, quote unquote, evil descends. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, like now when I travel and I look at locations, I'm always thinking about that like pinnacle environment, such a strong sense of place. You know, I think it took place somewhere in the East Coast, like in Maine, it felt like, um, Pennsylvania. There's, there's a really good story attached to that, oh, actually, because it was a, it, like the novel that it was based on was set in Rhode Island. And oh, so yeah. it was supposed to film in a place called Little Compton, Rhode Island. But what happened in Little Compton, Rhode Island, is after they, the film commission had already agreed that they was going to film there, people from the local, uh, I think, Presbyterian church got their hands on copies of the novel and read it and essentially drove the film production out of the town because they didn't want their, uh, their town being associated with evil. So if you go into the records of the New York Times, there are like – a multiple articles about this town who are just like we're going to keep hollywood out of our out of our quaint village and we won't let you sully the name of little compton rhode island so well, they had to move that. it to massachusetts i love that you know that and you know what's really fascinating also about the film that okay so that's kind of parallel paralleling life outside of the, you know, the movie as well as what's happening inside exactly, the movie. Exactly. Is also, you know, when you see Wild Wild Country, have you watched that yes. yet? Okay, so, I mean, that just was so amazing to see and what was happening in the 80s because this movie came out 1987. So right in the same time as the Rajneesh <laughs> Purim commune was happening. And when you see all of these people who are like these um, you know, quote unquote Christians who are trying to shut down what is happening there. Mm-hmm. And then you think about the themes in the movie of like people outside trying to control what's happening with Jack Nicholson's character, which is really the devil. And then, you know, um, Cher and, and Michelle Pfeiffer and Susan Sarandon and they're, you know, the witches. And here they are perfectly fine. They're not hurting anyone until the town decides that they're going to try to control it in some way. Yes. You know, and like from outside control and I and and it really is was not lost on me to see in real life, you know, so hearing the story about the filmmaking but also thinking about that commune which was basically like love, sex, you know, like their own spirit this, you know, minority spiritual viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, there were poisonings, we should be clear. <laughs> but they only started that, they only started that poisoning when their way of life was threatened. They would never have gone to that. You know, and I don't think in the movie that necessarily they would have Jack Nicholson's care. The devil would have actually gone out into the community and poisoned them. He was just very focused on the three ladies. Anyway, it's, it's so <laughs> wild how that's happened, you know, in reality. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it it lends credence to like the universality of this this kind of uh, metaphor that they have built into into the story and maybe why it's endured in multiple media. Um, I am curious, though, about uh, your movie, Tattered Demalion. You went and you filmed in the Ozarks. So you went and you found a small town and you used that as your location. And I'm curious if 
you ever came across the kinds of questions that, you know, the producers of this film were coming across, yeah. where it's just like, you know, we want to know more about the content of this movie. Is it is it going to, you know, besmirch the name of this town? Are you going to use the name of this town? Are you going to use the this coffee shop? And like, how yeah. are you going to use it? So, so when you were scouting, uh, you know, how did you answer those questions? Were they asked of you? Or Yeah, for sure. Everyone wanted to know, was this going to be another winter's bone? That was like the big question. Yeah. And so um, part of what I needed to do was like really explain that this was a fictional story. And in a way, shooting in West Plains, Missouri was like the same as if I went to a completely another, another country, like Morocco. I mean, it was like... It was com- it was a totally fictional story, but the environment and the sense of place that we were able to you know access was the reason that we came there. But the story of how we made the movie, I have to kind of go back a little bit and tell you about it because after making the Brass Teapot, which was a film that I put so much of my heart and my soul in, it was made for under a million dollars in mm-hmm. 19 days and just was like such a labor of love. And I had this like crazy, you know, expectation that that movie was going to launch my career because it was like, I thought it was like, you know, in a small way, it was like a studio film made with a small budget in a thoughtful manner. Mm-hmm. But instead it was like crickets, you know, and it got like 33% on Rotten Tomato. It was just like totally tanked. It was devastating to me. And I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a manager. Nothing happened. And so that for two years, I kept thinking something good will come from this. You know, like I made my first movie. People, audiences liked it. Something will happen and nothing happened. So finally, I called up my co-writer in this deep depression. I just said, like, we have to make our next movie. Like, even if it's just like, I'll just go shoot it on a DSLR. Mm -hmm. Let's write something. And so we started bouncing an idea back and forth. And over a period of like, two weeks came up with a structure four weeks we wrote the script together and on the fifth week i was actually in the ozarks scouting locations mm. and and my co-writer tim macy had lived in west plains and in and around there and was presently living in kansas city and he kept saying we have to shoot west plains we're going to get a lot of um help if we go there mm-hmm. and i just wasn't sure i was looking at all these like branson and and then i drove down to west plains and i was amazed because it had that witches of eastwick feel it had um it it was definitely a town that had one at one point had an industry so it definitely felt like it had lost its industry mm-hmm. but at the same time it had like this like idyllic feeling farmlands the main center of town and as i started talking to people and people and i mean my me coming there was as weird and and crazy as like again going to the middle of nowhere or mm-hmm. having a complete foreigner come in to their town it was yeah. like a filmmaker here like and i started talking to people and immediately Every single, like from the mayor to just citizens on the street, were like, "Oh yeah, you can shoot in our house. You can shoot in our, our on our street in our our store, and not only that, but we will come and be in the scene and we will feed you." <laughs> and so <All> right. <laughs> it was like I was like sold. I was like so I had a very opposite experience from which is we stuck in the sense that the town just completely wrapped their arms around us to the point where we had a scene where we had to. We had to burn down a trailer and like we were looking for a trailer and the fire department called us up and they said, we have a perfect trailer for you. And in fact, we'll come and burn it for you and we'll put the fire out. Mm-hmm. So we were just it was like the best possible way to make a movie. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, I'm going to get into a little bit about um, how you might write uh, or depict characters who are 
a little bit evil, but you don't necessarily want to make them a caricature. Because there's some some things I think that we can talk about in terms of uh, the witches of Eastwick and Tatter Demalion. So we're going to come back to that after this break. Welcome, everyone, to the live wrestling spectacular in Los Angeles. So far, the world's most boring wrestling podcast has been destroying the competition. Isn't there anyone who can save us from this travesty? Wait, could it be? It's Titan Fights, the perfect wrestling podcast. Tights and Fights is here to save us from the monotony of boring wrestling podcasts with hilarious conversations. Woke trips through the history of wrestling. And joke about the finer points of people wearing spandex. What a match! And the Tights and Fights podcast will be back every week. Thursdays on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get podcasts. Please, these hosts have families. Tyson Fights Podcast. Tyson Fights. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here speaking with Rama Mosley about the Witches of Eastwick. Um, Rama, this is obviously based off of uh, John Updike's novel of the same name. Uh, Michael Christopher obviously adapted it. He's a playwright, too, still makes a lot of great work. Um, And he was saying in interviews that he had read Updike's novel and really enjoyed the first half of it, but really did not enjoy the second half of it. Um, He's quoted as saying uh, the novel was John Updike's very, very, very dark view of women. It was not a story I wanted to tell. This was a very pertinent and hot political sociological issue about women in a repressed state finding their own power and then getting to use it. And this devil was an extraordinary character that I've never seen before. So it was fun to write. Mm -hmm. So he really, really changed a lot of this. Um, but it does explain how we get this over-the-top Nicholson character, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's very typically him. Mm-hmm. And Christopher was saying that, um, you know, Nicholson stayed very true to the page. Like, there wasn't much improving on it. He, he stayed very true to the page, which I thought was very surprising. So I think that, you know, he had written this over-the-top satirical devil character. But at the same time, I see people who are re-looking at this movie, Mm -hmm. and they are a little bit appalled of how uh, still how sexist it is, even Mm -hmm. if it is. Like, I'm not sure, you know, I think that Christopher got across what he wanted. He has Mm -hmm. this person who's just, like, clearly disgusting and who represents the worst of humanity. But I think that people look at it through a different lens today. That's interesting. Um. You know, it's so fun. I haven't talked to anyone recently about this film except for you, but it. I think about it all the time. I personally feel that it accomplished what it needed to accomplish. I think it's a great example of male of male feminist, really. You know, um, and and I would have chosen to talk about a female story, like a female director, film, a written story, except that the Witches of Eastwick just was so incredibly potent for me Mm -hmm. and as a child I don't there wasn't any female um, women to really look up to that were doing work in this space yeah in the the supernatural sci-fi space which is what I love I feel like of course you could break it down and you could say okay so that was so sexist and 
um, because of Jack Nicholson's character, because of the devil. But really, the fact the fact of the matter is, if you look at that movie and you watch the awakening of these women, mm-hmm. now one could say, okay, well, they were awoken by a man. They could have had their own awakening. But I actually, I never took, I never thought those thoughts when I watched it. And it's still inside myself when I think about that scene on the tennis courts, when I think about the, you know, the subsequent scenes where you see each of them developing their powers. That was so impactful. I mean, mm-hmm. that was so beautiful and fun, you know, sexual and like just it was so evocative. And to think about how I potentially could do the same thing. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine like as a child, I was thinking, I wonder if this is real. Like, <laughs> I wonder if I could do this. I remember staring at a at a flame for like hours every night trying to see if I could shift, you know, the action of the flame or it, it started me on my obsession with levitation that I could like levitate things. Yeah. So I feel like it's a it's a great male feminist, you know, creation. I have it's just like oh this is like sidebar, but when Frances won the Oscar and she was up on stage giving her speech, um you know, and she was like, her arms are extended and she's like cackling, you know, (laughs) that was like one of the greatest moments. I was like, witches of Hollywood, you know, come together. Um, I, I would like to get into George Miller specifically and uh, how this was his first Hollywood movie. Um, and apparently Jack Nicholson gave him some advice on the set. So even if he didn't think that this was like his favorite movie that he made or the best movie that he made, he said he learned probably the most um, working on this because he was with Jack Nicholson. And apparently, um, uh, this is his quote, uh, some of the producers were very chaotic in their thinking. It kind of got crazy. There was no purpose to things. The first mistake I made was I sat down in a production meeting and they said, OK, where can we cut the budget? And I said, oh, I don't need a trailer. I was always seen as being very polite and they mistake politeness for weakness. That's what Jack Nicholson told me. He said, be careful. They mistake your politeness for weakness. He said, you've got to make them think you're a little bit crazy. Do you think... <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. and I was like ah everything yeah. kind of came into uh, clarity about both Jack Nicholson and George Miller at that yeah. point because I was like Jack Nicholson I think is always playing a little bit crazy because it keeps people off guard specifically like money people you yeah. know they're just like well I don't know he's brilliant I won't ask him just give him what he wants yeah um and the fact that George Miller gave up his trailer on his first Hollywood film Unbelievable. is very interesting to me. And he said yeah. that he would never do that again, yeah. um, obviously. Um, and he he still wants to be nice, but he puts on a different face for yeah. Hollywood, which now we have George Miller, I believe, embroiled in lawsuits with Hollywood, I think, um, which oh. people can do some research on that because that might yeah. be big for the industry. Um, do you think, you know, when you're when you're directing, like, even in the indie space, you know, like, do you feel like you need to kind of put on a different kind of persona when you're doing this type of work? Oh, my God. Yes. And I think it's funny that I'm like, oh, my God, he didn't have a trailer because like literally he did not. Literally, I had a porta potty in the Ozarks, like seriously. Um, so, OK, when I went and made my first film, I was coming off of years and years of directing commercials in which I had really learned as a young person at 16 how to handle clients, how to work with my crew, and had developed, I think, really good habits Mm -hmm. of heart and mind, how to be a good collaborator, because I was being hired. And I understood very quickly that in order to get repeat business, 
I was there to execute the project, bring my vision, do it the best I possibly could. But at the, at the end of the day, it was a higher job. So I had really good training in commercials. So going into my feature, I was thinking I would apply those same skills, except that this time it was going to be quote unquote, my movie. I knew we had financiers and we had other people involved, but at the same time, this was my opportunity. And I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be liked because I wanted to have a, another opportunity to direct. Mm-hmm. So I went in and I, I had this persona. I tried really hard to um, acquiesce I acquiesced. I guess you don't try really hard to acquiesce. You just do. So when things were needed to be adjusted, I would. When I and then I would also push for things I needed. Like I knew I needed two cameras. It was too big of a film to make without with one camera in 19 days. Yeah. But I was so worried about being like that. Um, ended up sacrificing so many things that I knew at coming in as an expert. Really coming in as an expert, having worked on hundreds of commercials, you you gain expertise. And so instead of really pushing for what I knew was right, I kind of deferred because they were like, well, we've made films. You haven't. This is how it goes. And I deferred to things that were like illogical, that didn't make sense. <laughs> like what? Um, you know, OK, so I guess I'm going to spill the beans. But like I, I was matched with a cinematographer and we were not well matched. Mm. And and it became very clear early on that this was a very difficult relationship after the first day of shooting i was used to being held accountable to a timeline that you shoot in a certain amount of time and that you don't go over budget i had not ever gone over budget except once in my entire career as a commercial director which is really you know a feat i was always delivering jobs on time on budget and after the first day when he had spent three and a half hours lighting a very simple scene i was alarmed and so I took that. Ooh. Yeah, I <laughs> That's took a long that. Time. <laughs> I took that concern to the powers that be, you know, the other people who were involved, and and everyone was like, "It'll be okay." But by the end of the week, it was not okay. It just continued to go like this. And so, instead of saying this has to change, we need to replace this person, I just didn't want to rock the boat. I also didn't want the actors to see me as having been, um, you know, creating chaos you know by changing the dp but in the end i should have like like it was like by the end of the movie he had he was threatening to punch my one of our producers in the face it was like you know it was a really hard situation that i've not talked about until now (laughs) (laughs) we're we're like a therapy session here on the show so this please don't anyone tell anyone else because (laughs) this is just between you and i but, you know, that was something that I knew. I knew. I mean, I never had a situation like that. I've worked with so many dozens of cinematographers. Like, I know what the relationship should be. It's not as if I was, like, um, naive. Like, I know how it should work. And and because I wanted to be nice and I wanted to be viewed as a team player, I went along with these things until I finally got to the end of the movie. And I think I was, like, so... Um, horrified and I had such bad PTSD from that experience that it really like I ended up you know arguing about things that I didn't need to argue about and fighting for things you know I sort of lost my balance in the post-production process Mm -hmm. because I just suddenly became like okay I'm gonna like fight for these things like there I ended up fighting to um 
shoot what was in the script, which was a whole sequence that took place 400 years before that really established the history of the brass teapot. It was in the script. When we wrote it, we were really attached to it. It was like gave you this beautiful kind of setup. It was in my mind like my Witches of Eastwick set piece because it was a big scene, yeah. action sequence, um, and sets up the power of the teapot. And everyone else was like, you know, do not, you should not do this. We should, it's wasting our money. We should not do it. And, um, and instead of really listening to them, I pushed to do it. And I went off to Romania and I shot this whole <laughs> incredible action sequence and was like totally, um, into it. And I got a rough cut and I sent it out and like all the producers killed it. They were just like, there was no, be, there was just no, um, I should have listened from the beginning and known that. These, they were not going to go along with it. And if I had listened more carefully, I would have known I didn't need to waste the money that got wasted. Mm-hmm. So. But I mean, that's why people have first features. Yeah. It is. I mean, there. I mean, if you can come up with one that you're really happy with at the end, because it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Like no matter what happens, it's probably going to be a very difficult shoot. Um, and you could, if you can come up with something good at the end, then that's amazing. I think about that in terms of this movie and the fact that like this movie was so rough to make. Yeah. Um, the Witches of Eastwick. Uh, George Miller quit the picture twice. Um, all three lead women quit it at least once. Um, And the only reason why it ended up getting made is because Jack Nicholson came and brought everyone back on every single time, which is interesting to me. I mean, like you look at the way that he influenced this picture and he is the uncredited producer. And I assume that he's probably an uncredited producer on almost every project that he's ever been in. Incredible. Yeah. Um, that you know that's so interesting because my my film so that's my reference point here I am saying Witches of Eastwick is like my reference for my movie and my movie sort of like now resembles what you're telling me happened because it was so rough it was like I you know the DP you know the the relationships it was very fraught and I think in some ways Joan Sheckle who who teaches some amazing courses on directing and and film writing and she often talks about how if you haven't worked through the themes of your your movie in the script mm-hmm. that they'll actually start to play out in real life on set so that it's really important <laughs> to handle these issues and and I realized after making the brass teapot that there were so many issues that didn't get worked through in our screenplay that ended up being reflected in the course of making the movie from from Read to the question of power, um, to really the question of how far we would each go to make this movie, and you know put ourselves through a lot of struggle, and and I do wonder if we had really kind of resolved that in the screenplay, if we would have had to actually, in a spiritual sense, work it out in the movie. We're going to take another quick break, and then I want to get into a little bit more of special effects stuff. Um, so stay tuned. Hey, my name is Jonah Ray. You might have seen me on the latest season of Mystery Science Theater 3000 or heard me on the Nerdist podcast. Well, I got a new podcast that's about five years old, but we're moving it over to Max Fun, along with my friend Cash Hartzell. Hey, everybody. And my other friend, Neil. Hi. Nailed it! So, it's a music podcast where a lot of people just kind of hang out and talk about music, but so much more. We also take submissions. And so you can hear your band or our, our music, <laughs> or or both, or, or both of it. You could do you could listen to your band play your music. 
Yeah. Um, so tune in. Why don't you? You could find out about some new bands and maybe just hear us embarrass ourselves as we drink too much. Not too much. Well, it's all perspective, isn't it? Sure is. Listen to Jonah Radio on maxfun.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined by Rama Mosley today to talk about the Witches of Eastwick. So, uh, special effects wise, um, the team that was working on this film is the highest caliber. Uh, Michael Lantieri, who is the supervisor on the effects, he was the guy who was revolutionizing cinema with Who Framed Roger Rabbit in Jurassic Park, which is. I mean, with my childhood, I remember being blown away by both of those movies. Yeah. You know, I know people maybe look at uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is like, oh, yeah, they put animation in a in a uh, live action movie, whatever. But it was amazing. Amazing. Robert was, Zemeckis directed that, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, there's someone else on the special effects team that I was going to mention, too, that works with Zemeckis all the time. Yeah. But um, Lantieri um, definitely has a great relationship with Zemeckis, worked on a bunch of his stuff. Um and continues to do awesome things. And I keep thinking about this movie in terms of, you know, people didn't really expect that much out of it. But if you do look at these effects that they had going on, this is pretty intense. Advanced. Yeah. Even even the vomiting scenes, because let's get yeah. into some of the vomit. Yeah. There's a lot of vomiting in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have been looking all over to see what they actually used for the cherry pit vomit because I'm obsessed with, you know, like the craft of like what special these effects, effects people yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And I could not find it anywhere. No one who worked on the effects team wanted to answer questions about this. There were no interviews done. The amount of non interviews, the non marketing for this movie at that time is actually astonishing. That is. That's Usually so when I do research, I find yeah. a ton of them, but yeah. no one wants to ask questions of the people who worked on it about this movie. It's almost like, oh, yeah, it happened, and then they hope it disappears. Wow. I that's know. so crazy. Um, yeah, there's a lot of vomit, and mostly it's because of the fact that, you know, what they do, this first woman, this very puritanical woman, is this incredible scene. See, you know what was so amazing, actually, is this combination, how they utilize the whole supernatural genre and and do this incredible sequence without actually any visual effects. It's all special effects. But, like, in one scene, you've got the three women all eating cherries. You know, Mm -hmm. they're, like... um, you know, they're very charmed by the devil here and they're eating cherries without knowing that what's happening is that as our puritanical woman is giving this very intense speech about like um, the evils of like, you know, sex and mm-hmm. all these things that are happening and she's clearly going insane. She's like spitting up cherry pits and then it reaches its peak until she's like vomiting, you know, the whole cherry mass. <sighs> and then but the, what's so great is that then the women when they finally learn what has happened they gather their power they they use it against the devil to create the same circumstance so he has to go through exactly what he put this other you know person through i don't know how they did it i i would imagine like in anything you're dealing with tubes and you know side shooting because there's some angles a lot of times where you're not going straight on so there's sides so you you could have like a tube to her mouth and shoot it from a profile shot and it looks like there's much more coming out because there's, it's a trajectory. I don't know much about, you know, I, we use a lot of special effects in our film, but we also use a lot of visual effects. So the, the whole 
the whole actually shooting things real, like live, is so incredible to me. And they, I mean, how do you decide? I mean, is it just budget? Like, how it, do you decide if you can do that? And also just what is most most authentic, you know? It's like, are you going to really fly somebody with harnesses? Are you going to shoot them on, you know, in an in environment? Are you going to shoot them on green screen and then, you know, put them in? I mean, it's all about authenticity. With us, when for the brass teapot, we needed the teapot to actually um, shoot money out. So, you know, the first time that it happens is Juno is in the kitchen and she burns herself with a curling iron on her forehead and a hundred dollar bill like shoots out of the teapot, you know, it shakes and and comes out. Yeah. And then eventually it's just like, you know, in in a big action sequence where a lot of people were killed. It's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of bills are shooting out of it. And we actually, my father-in-law who came and helped us with the movie, created this whole tube with a vacuum that goes in reverse. And that we we made a teapot that had an empty bottom, you know, a hole in the bottom. We shut, yeah. We put it in there. We put the $100 bills in there. And he tested it out for weeks until finally it shot it out so that it could work. I mean, it was like, you know, so that was necessity. Yeah. And then we did scenes where we did, we utilized visual effects to be able to accomplish that same thing with money raining down. But um, most of the time it was practical because it was the only way to actually make it look good. And we also did not have the VFX budget. Yeah, there's, you have to, uh, there's a, there's a big gap between what looks good and what uh, you can afford most mm-hmm. of the time for indie films. So there is kind of a necessary practical effects um, contingent that happens for indie films, which I, you know, quite enjoy. And obviously mm-hmm. George Miller clearly enjoys as well mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, that's where he where he was reared in Australia and the exploitation scene is like find a way to make Could this happen that's real. Well, look at Mad Max. I mean, those sequences are incredible. When you watch the behind the scenes, like that stuff is really happening. I mean, there's I think there's the most amazing sequence where they show that one of those big sequences where all the cars are driving and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and the cars are rolling over. I mean, that stuff was, you know, they did it. They really did it. And yeah. you can feel it. It's scary as all hell. And I st- I feel that, too, with this. And even, yeah. like, the, the camera movement, the way that he works with his cinematographers to kind of um, accentuate the the action that he already has it's a lot of moving camera if you watch which, which is a Beastwick, the camera is moving constantly and also frames within frames you know he yes. does a lot of beautiful work with like when susan sarandon finds out she's pregnant there's this beautiful shot where you're looking through the door at the doctor's office but you're looking at her through this win you know this window and then the door does open to her but it's like this i mean it's so artful you know his but his moving camera is actually what inspired me the most is his use of Steadicam mm-hmm. and I think ultimately he went on to like you know and he uses a lot of cranes move with within which is, which is the stoic and obviously it goes exponentially from there when you look at a movie like Mad Max with these action sequences and oh yeah cameras on cranes as they're driving yeah there's I mean sometimes it felt like it, it made me realize how um, how static a lot of films have become, mm-hmm. because you do see that he's finding these interesting ways to to use rails to kind of you know come up on a character or back away. So the character the camera is always moving forward, backwards, or side to side. Mm-hmm. There's a really great scene with Jack Nicholson and Cher in the bedroom where he's telling her that he re- she really does want to have sex with him. Like mm-hmm. he's convincing her with this monologue. Woman as a whole, isn't that what they say? 
all the futility of the world pouring into her? Hmm? How much can you take, Alex? How much can you take before you snap? Hmm? Lying on your bed, looking at the ceiling, waiting for something to happen, and knowing all the time that you were meant for something better, feeling it, wanting it. Use me, Alex. Use me. Fill me up. I can take it. Make it happen. No, don't wait. Time is the killer. Make it happen. Do it, Alex. Do it now. And it is a monologue, and it may not have worked um, had he just done like a regular kind of over-the-shoulder kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But instead, he's got a single shot. Mm-hmm. And he's moving that camera back and forth left to right as Jack Nicholson is walking around her. Mm-hmm. And it's just this really interesting way to portray that scene that I don't know that that scene would have been as funny or as useful yeah. had he not done that camera work. Yeah, that was very kinetic and ultimately leads her to the bed. You know, it I does. Remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's. It's a kind of thing that works thematically, too, because you have these characters who are being drawn to something. So if they're being drawn, that means they're being pulled. They're being pulled in certain directions, and that is represented visually. And I guess it's the same thing when it comes to Mad Max Fury Road. You have a camera that's constantly moving with these characters are being drawn to certain things. So they have to kind of, you know, head this way, head this way, um, change direction. And... um, Man, he's just so good. He's so good. Yeah, it's so inspiring. We watched so much of that movie over and over again, and I t- took so many screen grabs and like cut little sequences from it as inspiration for the brass teapot. Not that I was like literally frame for frame trying to like achieve you know exactly that, but it was like it was a guiding force. And you know what's interesting? It, it that and Fight Club were two of the films that I kept looking at because of the camera movement, because of mm-hmm. the way that when things, when pivotal moments happen, the camera would shift its axis. So it would go from like an over the shoulder to then becoming a profile. And it helped the audience also to track like the significance of what's being told or the what is what the character is now taking in. Mm-hmm. And so I was... In my own way, trying to make a big movie, I was trying to use camera movement to elevate the production value. Because I actually, the same as you, have had had this feeling that in a lot of indie films, because out of necessity you don't move the camera, yeah, um, you don't have time to. I mean, it takes time to lay rails down and to and to do this kind of thing. So I really pushed. It was one of the main things that I really pushed for was actually steady cam on brass teapot and dolly moves. And so you know that was that's like very intense working with Steadicam on a small indie movie because, you know, you're having to jump anytime you take the camera on or off the Steadicam, it's a good, you know, 40 minutes. But it ended up giving, it ended up elevating the whole visual look. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't have the ability to do that with Tattered a Million because it was actually like, you know, a fraction of what the brass teapot budget was because I went out to make the movie on my own. Um, but we, we we had a different aesthetic. We really like. I was thinking a lot about old westerns, and I really wanted to create a film that had a f- the feeling of an old western. But instead of like the cowboy, the male cowboy, it was a female veteran coming home from the war. And mm-hmm. instead of this, you know, the the love interest being you know cowboy and the and the woman, it was this um, 
woman and a child. And so it ended up that the tableau, like the wide open Western tableau, really fit what we were doing. And there were little pushes, little like moments where the camera pushes in or pulls out. Mm -hmm. And we did lots of handheld. And that kind of accomplished what I needed to accomplish. There was just no way to do it with dollies. (laughs) I didn't didn't have a dolly. Oh, no. Everyone needs a dolly. I think George Miller has like a few hundred lying around, you know, just... You can yeah. just borrow one of his. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this movie and hopefully reintroducing it to generations who fell in love with Mad Max Fury Road and might want to look at some of uh, George Miller's more forgotten work. And mm-hmm. thank you so much for uh, talking to us about Tattered Demalion and the Brass Teapot. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to Betsy West and Julie Cohen, the directors of the new Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, RBG. And we will be discussing Brian De Palma's Carrie. This is the only place where you're going to be able to find uh, RBG compared to Carrie White. Uh, If you do like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. We've got Inside Outcast who says, no other podcast comes to mind that so intricately weaves a guest creative product with the material that inspired them. Many of the cult or genre films discussed are among the unsung. I also agree. I, uh, I agree, Inside Outcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to give us a review. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at, at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group, too. It's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. And if you're in the LA area, we've got a live show coming up as part of the Voyager Institute at Resident in Downtown. That's May 5th. And you can go to the Voyager Institute Facebook page to find out more. Our producer is Casey O'Brien, our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.